Attention mining investors. Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil, surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil, led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I want to thank each of you for listening, making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. also want to thank our sponsors uh, for the second hour of today for making this show economically viable. They are Timmins Gold, Bravada Gold Corp, Golden Arrow Resources, Miranda Gold, Sand Gold Corp, SGX Resources, and Uranium Energy Corp. Well, I'm really pleased to have with me once again Glenn Downs. Glenn is the Chief of Staff uh, to U.S. Congressman Walter Jones. He's a nine-term Republican who represents the coastal North Carolina, and he sits on the Armed Services and Financial Services Committee. Prior to joining uh, Jones's staff, Glenn was a legislative assistant to U.S. Senator uh, Faircloth, where he handled banking and financial service legislation as well as other budget and tax-related matters. Downs was formerly chief of staff of, uh, to the lieutenant governor of North Carolina and a former assistant cabinet secretary in the administration of North Carolina Governor Jim Martin. And prior to entering government and politics, he was a financial officer uh, and BB&T, uh, at BB&T, now one of the nation's largest financial holding companies spanning most of the southeastern U.S., Glenn earned his bachelor's degree at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, where he graduated magna cum laude and uh, with honors in economics. And he holds a master's of economics degree from North Carolina State University. Welcome, Glenn. It's good to have you back on Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, thank you very much, Jay. It's great to be here. Really good. Now, you're sitting down there in Washington today, I believe. You're, you're in the nation's capital, or are you at home? No, I'm, I'm right here in Washington in the belly of the beast. <laughs> well, I think our, our prior guest, uh, Mr. Bergman, would probably pretty much agree with you on that. Uh, for those of you who, uh, for our listeners who may not be that familiar with Walter Jones, tell us a little bit about him. Where, where does he stand on issues like foreign policy, the Federal Reserve, fiscal policy, stuff like that? 
Well, thanks for asking. Walter Jones is a member of the House Republican Liberty Caucus, and as such, his, his views are identical to Dr. Ron Paul's, but he's very similar. Uh, if I was, he, he actually was Dr. Ron Paul's vice chairman of the Domestic Monetary Policy Subcommittee when Dr. Paul was the committee chairman, mm-hmm. and, uh, and his, his views are sufficiently like Dr. Paul's, that he was actually in this current Congress, which began back in January, was invited to leave the Financial Services Committee by our House Republican leadership, and, and in part, I think, because he just didn't go along with the, some of the leadership programs. But uh, his position on uh, is smaller government, constitutional government, and as such, uh, he is very skeptical of a lot of these transnational agreements, transnational organizations, a lot of the foreign adventures. I think if, if there were to be any differences, I, uh, Congressman Walter Jones is probably somewhat more uh, socially conservative. I know Dr. Paul is personally a very conservative, socially conservative guy, but uh, some of the public policy stances that Walter Jones has in relation to social policy would be line up a little more like uh, some of the traditional conservative Republicans, say, than Dr. Paul. Okay, well, that's fair enough. It's about as close as you get to Ron Paul, probably, though, in the the Congress. And um, you mentioned uh, trans, uh, so these these trade agreements. There's one uh, that Curtis Ellis, who's a former producer for Lou Dobbs, he's been on this show to talk about, something called the Trans-Pacific Alliance or something like that. Are you familiar with that? Something uh, well, Obama's... There, there's one called the Trans-Pacific Partnership that's in that's the mi- mi- middle of being negotiated right now, but these negotiations are being done in secret. And if you, if, if you had someone on your show already talking about it, you probably heard more detail that I can give you, but they're negotiated in secret, and, uh, and, and it would be, uh, uh, in addition to, it, there's a lot more involved than just a free trade and lowering yeah. trade barriers. There, it, there's all sorts of things in these, these agreements about what you can and cannot do, and these treaties end up supplanting and, and usurping our Constitution. Yeah, and so. the rights of uh, of American legislators to make laws, as I understand it, uh, one of the things that Curtis told us is that uh, uh, that foreign companies that would come into the U.S. would be exempt from certain EPA regulation, whereas the domestic companies would still be uh, subject to those uh, to that regulation. That was one thing, and he mentioned also in certain cases of you know commercial uh, court cases and so forth would be heard by. The fourteen nation court, or something, rather than just uh, American courts. So it's and it's done in secret, though. That's what I don't get. And why is that? Well, because if, if these if these agreements saw the light of day, uh, they they would uh, they would not be able to pass uh, uh, Democratic muster, small d Democratic muster. Yeah. Uh, th- what happens with a lot of these agreements, like you see the, the agreement that put together the European Union? you were allowed to vote, and if you didn't vote the right way, meaning your country rejected it, they just kept re-voting until, until, until they you got, got the right. outcome that they wanted. And, until uh, you get it right. It's like uh, passing a test. You keep failing, and they keep letting you take it again. They, well, if they, they, if, until, you get the answer, until they get the answer they want, and then no more tests. <laughs> you never get to revisit it. This is some democracy we have, isn't it? Well, we're, we're frankly we're moving in the wrong direction on an awful lot of fronts. It seems to be these days, and and our founding fathers, obviously, the people that listen to your show know more 
than than most about these things already, obviously. But it's supposed to be three equal branches of government, lots of checks and balances, and the branch of government that's supposed to be first amongst the equals is the legislative branch. And and the spending bills specifically are supposed to all begin, and those sorts of decisions all begin here in the House of Representatives. And they were very clear about why that was. It's because this is the branch of government that's, that's most close to the people and is most subject to immediate election. And, and what's happened over time is that more and more and more of these decisions are being moving away from the legislative branch so that to the point the first of the branch that's supposed to be first amongst equals is a pretty far distant third at this point. And now you're finding the supranational, whether it's the Bank of International Settlements or the WTO or uh, any number of other agreements that we're getting into, United Nations or based organizations where these decisions are being made at, at, at levels of above national governments and, and not subject to uh, voter scrutiny or, or legislative oversight meaningful at all. Hmm. Well, I, it certainly then is sort of, I, I think you just sort of answered my next question is, why do you think Americans feel that they are no longer represented in Washington? Clearly they're not. The decisions are being made. And who is influencing this secrecy? I mean, why, 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 I mean, who, who's, who's trying to turn the lights out, uh, so to speak? I mean, like any good, any good thief, a uh, thief in the night, he doesn't want the, the floodlights to come on him. So who, who are these people that are looking to get things like this Trans-Pacific Partnership passed? Who's behind well, this thing? Well, there are there are uh, uh, powerful and moneyed interests that are look that are that have got that will benefit. There are certain when, when you always look who benefits and yeah, follow people, the money. Yes, yeah, so follow the money. So somebody wins, somebody loses, and these things uh, uh, can be a zero sum game. And so if you if you if you benefit from uh, having access to markets that you don't already have and being able to, uh, or, 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 or more likely, frequently, it's to be able to source your, your uh, things from anywhere in the world, uh, then, then you, can, uh, you, you can get around things like whether they are labor laws or mm-hmm. whether it's uh, environmental law or whether it's just the free market. Right. You, know, you can, you can, if you can, if you can have total access to, say, this United States market and, and source things anywhere you want, uh, it, 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 it kind of becomes a race to the bottom in many instances. So it's, it's really problematic. Uh, the, the, uh, what a liberal may do about this and what a conservative may do about it are two different things. But I think it's possible for liberals and conservatives to use the vernacular of today. It's possible to agree on, on, facts and, and presuppositions, and some of the facts and presuppositions are that you know, real income in this country uh, is dropping, uh, the average working person is doing less well, uh, and we have a demographic time bombs and debts and deficits that, are, uh, that go out just as far as the eye can see, and, and unless we do something to, to make some very serious mid-course corrections very soon, uh, then we're, we'll be beyond points of no return in some of these instances. Yeah, well, certainly uh, David Stockman, who we're going to have on this show in a couple of weeks, believes that's already the case, that we're too far gone. And uh, it's um, uh, let's hope not. But uh, in any event, 
the you know you have the demographics running against the budget uh, too now and um, so I want to talk to you a little bit about the budget if we have time but sure. I'd like to before we get to that or or maybe we should now let's let's just go into that right now we we have a demographics and you know I'm a, I'm an older guy I'm uh, I'm retirement age now I haven't retired yet because I don't see any reason to but um, but talk to us about this I mean John Williams the economist Williams has said uh-huh. that we are going to get to the point where a hundred percent tax rate won't be sufficient to meet the uh, the budget needs of this country. Do you, do you, have you looked at at that statement? Right. You... He's he's exactly right, and the reason is that we know that this is not even a political debate. This is a matter of demographics, mathematics, and compound interest, mm-hmm. and the uh, the. Pete Peterson Institute, for instance, which is headed now by former Comptroller General David Walker, has calculated that the contingent liabilities of the federal government, just to meet the promises that have already been made, mm-hmm. and we know, we know what those promises are, we know how many people are alive, we know, just like an insurance actuary, we know how long people are going to live, right. uh, uh, we, th- those total about a hundred trillion dollars. That's just the public debt, mm-hmm. uh, and so debt is nothing in the world but a claim against the future. So there are already far more claims against the future than the future can possibly provide. So, if you took every re- every the, 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 the not just the the hundred percent of the future income of the of the United States economy, but you took all of the assets, it still doesn't total $100 trillion. So I like to say that our, our country, and, and this is a worldwide phenomenon, this is not just a, a U.S. phenomenon, right. we're very scary, uh, but you, it's like we, we have a, a country full of people that have all got uh, tickets, they think a paid-up ticket to ride on an airplane, it's like a 1,000 people have, thinking they've got a paid-up ticket to ride on an airplane with 100 seats. Right. It's just not going to work. Somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose. And we're now reaching the point, we have already reached, in my judgment, the point in our great arc of our history where the actuary, the cash flow is beginning to catch up to the actuarial promises. And we are now in a ditch where we're faced with a, not really problems to be solved, but predicaments to choose from. You know, bad choice A versus bad choice B, and if we decide, well, gosh, our system, we systematically, our political political system chooses not to choose between bad choice A and bad choice B. I just don't like that. So now we're going to be forced. Then we're going to, later we'll be forced with bad choice B or even worse choice C. Mm-hmm. This is not going to get better. We're not going to grow our way out of this because there's just more promise than, than can possibly be produced. Yeah. And I would certainly say as an Austrian uh, thinker and believer in Austrian economics that all of the policies that have been, uh, that have been passed to make things better in the short term have actually reduced the income that we're going to have in the long term because of uh, malinvestment and so forth. But, uh, Glenn, I, I think one of the things we can count on then is probably printing money and giving it to people, right, which is, of course, no answer because all that's going to do is result in, in huge amounts of inflation. Do you see it that way? Well, I do, but the, the, I think all roads eventually lead to inflation and probably pretty bad inflation. But, mm-hmm. but the problem is, you know, the, 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 that road is not necessarily straight, and it's tricky because 
the, currently what our Federal Reserve is really not, it's not really printing money. What it's really, really doing is printing bank reserves. Mm-hmm. And that's a, and that's a, that's not a distinction without a difference. Uh, so right now, you know, the instrumentality through which the, the Fed executes the monetary policy is through the commercial banking system. So right now you've got these excess reserves piling up in the banking system. And as you indicated, right now it's just, it's just resulting in lots of misallocations of resources and, and uh, malinvestment. But, uh, th- again, those, 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 those bank reserves aren't cash sitting there. It's debt. You know, it's, it want, money is debt in our system, and, and yeah. we, we move from a, 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 a asset-backed monetary system to a debt-based monetary system. Right. And at some point, I guess if you look, look at the work of people like Genzo Parsons, who wrote uh, "Dying of Money," I think was the name of the book, about some of the some of the hyperinflations that have occurred in in more modern countries. Hyperinflation tends to be a it results in a, from a crisis in confidence, not Zimbabwe, where they're literally printing off toilet paper money, but right. in a modern uh, fractional reserve debt-based monetary system, what ends up happening is you, you, at first you go through a crisis like we went through in 2008, 2009, that was, that was stemmed in part by sovereign government stepping up and guaranteeing debts and replacing deleveraging that was occurring in the private economy with increased government leverage and doubling the size. We've more than doubled the size of our national debt since 2008, for example. Uh, and, and at first that instills confidence, but then you start having sovereign debt crisis. And then people say, who in the world is going to back these guys up? Right. That's when you have that Minsky moment and people say, oh my gosh, I've got these they're either little, debt, little green pieces of paper with dead presidents on them, or I've got a promise to pay me from some barely solvent financial institution that's backed by the government who can't pay its own bills, and you say, hey, I'm taking whatever I can get and, and turning it into something very real. So as I've educated myself on past hyperinflations, it's not something where you go from, Two percent inflation to three to five to ten to twenty to thirty, it can, you know it can be tamped down uh, for a long time, mm-hmm. but then when it busts out, you you have just a, it's a crisis in confidence, and people want to trade promises for real things, and 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 that and it it, it happens fast, and it's yeah. nasty, and it's overwhelming, and yeah. and, and, and and I don't think people are really prepared for it. Oh, for sure not, for sure not. But yeah, it's really true, Glenn. If you look at the charts of inflation in Germany, for example, and elsewhere, it's like a hockey stick. It just takes off. I mean, it's like people are confident and all of a sudden they lose their confidence. Uh, and, uh, and certainly there has to be some trepidation within the Fed right now, given uh, the pullback now from foreigners in buying U.S. Treasuries. There has to be some concern, and you wonder to what extent the uh, the discussions that came out of the Fed and uh, talking about tapering and, and winding down the QEs, and then very quickly when the markets sort of had a hissy fit, as David Stockman likes to say, out comes all these Fed Reserve chairman or Federal Reserve officers saying, "Oh no, we didn't really mean it. We're going to keep printing." Uh, there must be some real serious concerns among the Keynesians these days. Do you think any of these Keynesians are waking up and saying, "My gosh, maybe we maybe we were wrong." 
No, <laughs> to be honest with you, no. I mean, uh, what, what I've actually witnessed here amongst policymakers, whether yeah. it's legislative or, or I've had the chance to interact with regional Fed officials and officials from the, from the, the Fed, is they are often wrong, but they are never in doubt. And if, if, they, if what they think is going to work didn't work, that they want to want to do, what they want to do is to double down on that failed paradigm. Yeah. We just, we just didn't hit, our stimulus wasn't big enough is what the problem was, or our right. monetary bazooka wasn't big enough. Right. Because I think it, required, it would require them to say, gosh, everything I ever thought was just wrong. Yeah, and that just seems to be a bridge too far for most yeah. people's minds. Yeah, most they can't do it. Mind. They can't do it. Actually, you know, uh, it is really true. We've had people in this show have talked about how the 30s were a failure, and they never question the policy during the 1930s for deficit spending and money printing. It was that we didn't do it well enough. We didn't execute it enough. We need to do a lot more. So they doubled down, as you say. Well, anyway, Glenn, you mentioned in a note to me before we went on the air that there is a, a budget. There's an upcoming debate on the national debt ceiling now again. I mean, this is just something that comes over and over and over again. But you mentioned that we've already exceeded it, and the Treasury is taking extraordinary measures to fund government right now. Uh, can you talk about that? Sure. That's probably the next great drama uh, here in Congress, uh, and that will probably occur right in early September, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and and. Congress has pur- purposely put it off because uh, they're going to be back in their districts over the course of August, and if they have to do a vote on the debt ceiling in advance of that, they'd have a lot of awfully tough questions to ask or to answer rather when they go back home. So they'd rather not do that. So let's put it off as long as we can. Oh, so we gosh. have already hit the debt ceiling once again, and then these extraordinary measures is what they do is they they borrow against various trust funds, uh, the retirement savings of federal workers, a lot of different things like that. And, and so um, and you get so that you just run out of, uh, of, of places to, to grab cash. And so, so that's going to be the next great battle. Uh, and, and the question is, will anything different be done that was done last time? Last time you might remember um, uh, that that Harry Reid and, and, and Mitch McConnell and Vice President Joe Biden sat down and came up with some sort of a deal, and, and it was it extended the debt ceiling, and they, they had a few gimmicks, but nothing really got done on the spending side um, uh, when, the, when it was the, the debt ceiling part of one of these crises. And so that will be the big, the big question. Are we going to really face this thing, or are we, or begin to try to get a hold of this? And that'll be a big clue, I think, for people individually to, to sort of know: do, do I head for the lifeboat, or do I, or do I keep trusting in the system to to, to begin to fi- begin to finally get control of the to bend these long-term cost curves? But th- there's an awful lot of things that need to get fixed. Including the, the whole monet. If we don't listen, if we don't change our monetary system, it, all this is going to be for naught anyway. That changing the monetary system is a necessary, but it's probably not a sufficient condition for, for for reforming things. But we've got a lot of tough work ahead of us, and we. But that'll be a first clue to determine whether policymakers are serious about getting control of things or just trying to 
extend and pretend and hope things get better and bail them out uh, with with renewed economic growth. Uh, that would be their hope, I guess. What do you have in mind for a monetary change? Well, the big problem is, and of course, you know, the Constitution says uh, gold and silver backed. And so, but even people around here that profess to believe in the Constitution don't really when you, when you press them on things like that. But, but what we first have to do, I think, is to get to 50% plus one. We're a long way from that. 50% plus one who think, hey, I, the current system isn't working. And this debt-based money system, when, when 100 years ago we outsourced our, our money creation to the commercial banking system through the, through the instrumentality of the Fed, most people don't realize, and there's obviously listeners of your show do, but most people don't realize that there's most of the money, quote-unquote, in the system is lent into existence through the commercial banking system. And the only way to get money to pay the interest on the money that was previously lent into existence through the commercial banking system is for somebody else to borrow some more money into existence. And it yeah. was a Ponzi scheme from the very beginning. It is a Ponzi scheme, and people are totally ignorant. Americans are totally ignorant. And why do you suppose, Glenn, the very basics, this sort of very basic knowledge of how our system works is never taught in the school system? Why? You know, you can get into uh, all kinds of supposition, and it would be just supposition on, on my part, but the fact is that it's not. And it's worse than that, really. If you came to, to Congress, let's say, and you went to the Senate Banking Committee or the House Financial Services Committee and, you, and, and, and got the members one, of the, one at a time and you said, Congressman so-and-so or Senator so-and-so, you know, I'm Jay Taylor, and we're putting together a little primer for junior high school students on the monetary system, and you have oversight over the Federal Reserve System, can you please, for, the, for our students in America, just... Walk us through, on about an eighth-grade level, just very basic eighth-grade level, how is money created in this country, and how is the Federal Reserve System organized, and who controls it? And, and I'm telling you, more than half of the people who allegedly have oversight over that process could, could, could uh, distinguish themselves by, go, by walking you through that process. They couldn't do it. No, no, no. And, 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 and anybody that hears this that wants to take exception uh, to what I said, I invite them to go try to prove me wrong. Yeah, I don't well, think how, many they can. Of, how many of Congressman Jones's colleagues understand it? You're saying half, less than half. Uh, no, oh, le- that's a, that, would be, that would be generous. That would be generous. Uh, mo- most, peop- most people... 5%, 10% of the congressmen understand how money is created? Uh, I would put it down pretty low. Put it down pretty low. And uh, what, what most people have, you know, what you need to do to get elected to Congress or to have the job, frankly, that I have in Congress usually has nothing to do with, with having, coming with any prior knowledge of this sort of thing. And, yeah. and there's very little critical thinking around here. Most of what people know is received wisdom. They are briefed by leadership or briefed by the Fed or briefed by, you know, the, the whatever, whatever, interest about the state of things, and they will come in and assure you that, uh, that uh, the you know, $250 trillion worth of uh, derivatives on, out there on the books of six major banks are not at all a systemic problem, and they'll, yeah. be, they'll be briefed by that, and they're, 
and they'll be assured, and that's that's about the extent of the investigation into the into the matter. Well, it's it's probably not a systemic problem for the banks because they're getting ready for bail-ins. There are uh, policy measures now in place by the Bank of England and the FDIC, uh, getting ready to uh, uh, to take our money from us in the uh, and of course legally and technically as I understand it Glenn when we put money and deposit in a bank we are unsecured creditors to the bank it's not really our I mean we we sh- people don't think of it in those terms because we've been giving FDIC insurance and all that stuff but isn't that the isn't that the case is it your concern that we might be looking at bail-ins in the United States in the not too distant future uh, yes yeah Th- I think that's already been a decision made uh, by uh, policy make by uh, Regulators, listen. Uh-huh. Everything, everything from uh, the European Central Bank and the Federal yeah. Reserve and, and and other central bankers around the world that the that the next round, the next time there is a financial crisis, and the next yeah. time some of these really systemically important uh, institutions start to go down, uh, that that the uh, creditors to those institutions are going to have to take a haircut, quote unquote. Yeah, I- Right. And and depositors equals creditors. What you saw in Cyprus was probably a test run for mm-hmm. for for larger larger failures yet to come. Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, I'm afraid that's what we've got. So it seems to me, Glenn, that one of the things people might think about doing is trading in that fiat money for some real stuff, and uh, in the form of gold and silver. But then the question is, that with just a minute left, uh, uh, just a minute left here, my engineer is telling me. What are the chances, in your view, of the government coming along and either confiscating the gold and silver or just taxing us uh, from here to kingdom come on gold and silver if gold and silver to rise to very high levels? Well, I would imagine that your know, government's pretty rapacious, so I, I would imagine they probably wouldn't try to do a rerun of, of the 1930s and just come confiscate it, but, but there are other ways to confiscate, more sophisticated 21st century ways of confiscating things like confiscatory levels of taxation and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and you try to turn gold, silver into, into like a, a medium of exchange mm-hmm. unlike, uh, unlike dollar bills every time you, you, you exchange gold for something else you're supposed to pay a tax on it and uh, so they can sort of tax your wealth away just through exchange if you use it as money, so it's a, it's a, you'll be faced with a lot of tough choices probably in the road ahead. Well, I'm afraid that's the case, and what we're trying to do on this show is help people as much as possible. And I'm searching for answers too, and talking to people like you, uh, and our next guest, Brent Cook, who's going to be with us, who is a, another geologist. We talked to one earlier today, Mickey Fault, but Brent Cook uh, will give us some ideas in terms of uh, mining companies where we might put our money. Uh, but you know, Glenn, there was so much more to talk to you about. We never got to Syria. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about Syria. I wanted to talk to you about Snowden and American espionage, some of those topics. I guess we'll have to have you back sometime. Uh, Of course, this is a changing scenario all the time, uh, but uh, thank you very much for being with us. We are out of time, unfortunately. Uh, We'll look to talk to you very soon again, hopefully. That sounds great. Thank you very much, Glenn. Uh, Folks, don't go away. We'll be right back, as I mentioned, uh, with Brent Cook, um, a geologist uh, who always has a lot of wisdom to impart, so don't go away. We'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
Windfall profits happen frequently in gold exploration stocks, but the risk of losses are also common. Miranda Gold enhances prospects of shareholder gains by combining the intellectual capital of geologists, mine finders Ken Cunningham and Joe Herbert with other people's hard dollars in search for elephant-sized gold deposits in politically safe places like Nevada and Columbia. That keeps shareholder dilution to a minimum, so when discoveries are made, major gains are possible. For more, go to MirandaGold.com. Bravada Gold Corporation controls 18 exploration and development properties covering nearly 50 square miles in Nevada's well-known gold trends. Its flagship Wind Mountain Gold Silver Project is 100% owned and had an independent updated resource estimate and positive preliminary economic assessment in early 2012. This past September, Bravada signed an agreement with Argonaut Gold to further explore and develop Wind Mountain. For further information, please visit bravadagold.com. Sandgold is an aggressive gold company operating in Manitoba, Canada, a top-ranked gold mining region. Sandgold's most recent gold discovery, the Shoreline Basalt Mining Unit, is already in production at more than 75,000 ounces per year. And Sandgold continues to pursue nearby targets within one of Manitoba's most prospective gold mining trends, the Rice Lake Gold Belt. Discover the potential at Sandgold. Trading symbol is SGRCF on the OTCQX and SGR on the Toronto Exchange. Visit our website at www.sandgold.ca. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me again Brent Cook, and he's the second geologist today. We don't usually have two geologists in a given day, but it just worked out that way. Brent was available, and he's always traveling, going to places, uh, far corners of the world, looking for minerals, and he's out of touch. We can't talk to him. But today, I think this guy's had a vacation. He's telling me before we went on the air that he's down at the, at the beach. He lives in San Diego, first of all, which makes me envious because San Diego is got to be one of the most beautiful places, the best climates anyway in the world, with almost no humidity and blue skies and, and water and lots of pretty girls with not very many clothes on at the beach, I suppose. You were out there surfing, is that right, Brent? Yeah, I have been for the past few days. Um, global warming doesn't seem to be affecting us too much at all. What was that? Global warming doesn't seem to be affecting us down here much at all. Oh, okay. So we, you, you got me into this topic of global warming, you know, Brent, and and I, uh, and I've gotten myself into more trouble with that subject than anything else. Almost. I mean, I could almost talk about religion and politics, and it, it seems to be less less threatening than uh, than the issue of global warming. Um, you, you're still believing that that there's a good chance it's human caused, right? Well, it's not a belief. It's just based on facts. And, yeah, we can go into a lot more detail elsewhere. But, yeah, that's what the facts point to. 
Yeah, we've had uh, Naomi Ariskas. Thank you for introducing me to her. I think uh, she has a whole lot of integrity. And between the two of you, uh, the, you know, I've sort of revisited this subject and have kept an open mind uh, because certainly people of my ideological bent don't want to believe. Uh, don't want to believe it. We don't want to have government having another reason to come in and, and pass more laws and all of that. And I, I don't think that you're necessarily in favor of governments uh, overwhelming us. Either you're pretty much a libertarian, as I understand it. But, but nonetheless, science is science and truth is truth, right? So, and I, and I don't want to get into that today because we can probably have Naomi, and that's her area of expertise. Although you, as a scientist, I think have a great deal of uh, of, of credibility, Brad. I think as much as as anybody in this business. So uh, when, in fact, it was you're bringing this topic up, if it was just somebody else that had a political axe to grind, I probably wouldn't have listened. But uh, thanks uh, for helping us. And I think it is a topic that, that should be discussed, and I think this president that we have is probably going to push through some sort of carbon tax pretty soon, whether we like it or not. So in any event, let's, let's talk a little bit about the gold Gold markets. Maybe you'd rather not. You'd rather get back on your surfboard. <laughs> but <laughs> gold markets have not done so well this year or last year. Oh my goodness, we're we're in a two-year bear market here. It seems almost for the gold shares, and even they headed down even before the gold price uh, no, headed noticeably lower. Uh, are we anywhere near the bottom? Do you, I mean, I know you're a geologist, and you're really your focus is really on the fundamentals. On geological uh, prospects for finding metals and so forth, but I mean you can't but help have some sort of a sense or an opinion or at least a hope or a feeling about where we're at. We now. We, we have been talking a lot about the market uh, as well as stocks and specifically in my uh, investment letter, mm-hmm. and I do not think we're certainly not a, at a capitulation stage. Mm-hmm. And I think. We are going to be bouncing along at this level and possibly lower for quite some time, meaning you know, this year at least and probably into next year. And it's got more to do with the fundamental problems the mining industries face in terms of basically profitability, and they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the big mistake that's been made, and that is why the stocks are doing so poorly in general, is that despite the rise in the gold price, profitability of these companies has really not gone up very much. Now, let me understand what you're saying is you're talking about the mining shares uh, specifically. What about the metals? Well, the metal prices have gone up fine, and they've come off a lot lately. Uh, gold's yeah. down to, what, 12.50 or something now. Yeah. Um, but what's happened is when gold went from, call it, 300 to 1,500 bucks, mm-hmm. most of the major mining companies all went out, and their goal was to produce more gold. What that meant is their, their cost of production ran up, and the grade or the value of the gold in the ground on a you know per ton basis went down. Mm-hmm. So grades down, costs up means their margin really didn't increase that much. And right now, I mean, there's a number of ways of looking at uh, how much it costs the company to mine an ounce of gold. But the industry standard or what's becoming the industry standard is all in all in sustaining costs. On average, are in the uh, thirteen to sixteen hundred dollar an ounce range. Wow. So they're underwater right now with current prices. They are if they intend to expand and continue their business. Mm-hmm. There's one other metric, the cash cost, which is basically how much it costs to produce that ounce of gold, excluding in anything else. That would be the cost, say, if you owned a, a store and everything in there you just sold at what you could get for it and didn't restock, 
free selves, and you had buggy whips and rakes and computers in there. Um, you know, you're basically liquidating the business without building it back up. So unless they intend to increase their profitability and keep their minds going and replace the reserves or ounces they're producing, they're all going to go out of business. And then that can't, you know, they can't really afford to do that. So it's a very interesting time. Very yeah, interesting. it is a very interesting time. But it would seem that uh, I believe you mentioned maybe the last time we talked or when I saw you at a conference, I don't remember when, your sense was that the average grades have almost half of what they were a while back, that the, that the average grades that a lot of these big mining companies are putting through is something like a gram per ton as opposed to an average grade of two grams per ton a few years back. Is that right? Yeah, over the past, I think it's seven years, the gold grades have dropped from an average of two to one gram a ton. Actually, they're a bit under a gram now. Really? Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and then the cap cost, what people have to realize is that when you process twice as much rock, you've got to have twice as big a facility. The cap costs go up enormously. Uh, probably environmental issues become more of a concern in some cases. All kinds of things happen when you... Uh, I know that you have been... Um, uh, you have been. Some people have called you high-grade Brent Cook, and that was at a time when some of the low-grade things seemed to be doing pretty well. I guess, in a in a sense, you're having the last laugh now. Well, it's not that funny, but uh, yeah, I've always <laughs> been more focused on margins, and, and and grade is one way to look at that. But I, mean, I can point to it at a deposit that grades 0.9 grams per ton. That's way more profitable than a deposit that grades 30 grams a ton. So sure, sure the margin of what it costs. Sure. Every project is so different, and that's what people real have to realize, and that's why you rely on people like Brent Cook to help you figure it out. Of course, Brent, you're you're a geologist and not a mining engineer, but it's clear enough. I mean, you're when you're going out and looking at a project, you're looking to try to figure out as early as possible whether this is economically viable. So I suppose sometimes you can eliminate a lot of stories just by saying, Gosh, this thing is up in the Arctic Circle, and there's no infrastructure, and it's going to cost. You know, it's just you don't waste your time with it, right? Early on, a lot of times. Uh, precisely, I would say half the companies I look at here at my desk, I can throw away right off the bat. And then when I go on tours and that again, I can throw usually within half a day or a day on a project. I can tell whether it's worth investing in or not. And really, that's what's driving my whole newsletter. What I'm doing is I'm looking for investments to put my money into. That's what I talked about in the letter. So that's why the economics are ultimately so important. You're looking for fatal flaws, and the earlier you can find them, the better, and you don't have to waste your time. Precisely. Now, uh, silver, are you, any, any hopes for silver? Could, it, could we see a bounce in silver in any silver projects? I mean, a lot of the same things apply for silver as for gold, I suppose. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, the all-in costs of silver are... You know, they're not making much money either. A few companies are, but not many. Uh, so they're in the same situation. And I, I imagine, I don't try and predict where the silver or gold price is going, but sure. you know, they, they follow each other, basically. Sure. And copper, any hopes there? Um, I think we're going to see a slowdown in the copper price due to what's happening in China slowing down a bit. But ultimately, and this is this is really what I think is important to keep in mind, is that Regardless of what happens in the next year or so, we are going to be the war Earth. People on Earth are going to be consuming more metal than they're finding and developing. So, mm. bottom line, this sector it's got to come back, and yeah. high margin deposits are going to be extremely valuable. And right yeah. now, they're not being valued very high. So, 
if you've got the patience, now is the time to be at least start investing in these high-margin, high-quality deposits that the majors are going to buy. Yeah, actually, it was very interesting because Mickey Falp was on with us the first uh, part of today's show, and he had a copper project, an ISL project, uh, that uh, H. Uh, Hunter Dickinson has. It sounded pretty interesting. I don't know if you might know. I can't think of the name of it right now. Yeah, curious. I've been there a couple of times. You like it? Um, they've got some social issues. That, okay. That I hope that, that are silly, totally uh-huh. silly, and I hope they can work those out. Okay, and if they can, then you might like it. Yes. Uh huh. Because uh, it sounded pretty compelling from what Mickey said. But in any event, you have a couple of uh, a couple of stocks of your own that you might want to tell our listeners about. Um, go ahead. Uh, sure. Um, one is in uh, Idaho, called Midas Gold. Uh huh. Um, their market cap is eighty-three million dollars, right? Mm-hmm. And they just raised money from Franco, Nevada, and Tech, so competent groups. Yep. They've got in the order of six million ounces, high margin ounces, and just getting down to the bottom line, their after tax NPV at thirteen hundred dollar gold is one point four billion. Hmm. And they've got under a hundred million market cap. Oh. This is a few years out to production, but uh-huh. and you know, there's permitting and drilling and a lot of work's gotta be done. Yeah. But that's a quality deposit. Yeah. What sort of grades, uh, Brent? Sorry? What sort of grades do they have? I mean, high margin, I, I heard you say that, but what sort of grades? Is it a high-grade deposit? Is it underground? Actually speaking, it'll be open pit. It averages about 1.7 grams. Uh-huh. Then you also are going to recover antimony and some silver. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with that one. It was one I was looking at as well. Uh, do you have another idea? Yeah, let's throw another one out. This is an Australian-listed company uh, called Papion. The symbol is P-I-R in Australia. Uh-huh. Um, they just put out a pre-feasibility study that shows about a $900 million uh, NPV at 10%, and you can buy this thing for about $200 million. Mm-hmm. This is a very high-quality deposit. It's in Mali. Uh, grades, two point, mill grades going to be 2.7 grams, open pit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these things, there's not many of these sorts of things no. out there. So, no. you know, I don't know when the gold price is going to turn, but I do know that these are the few deposits that are going to make money. And when it does turn, these are the kinds of companies that probably will have the first uh, the first rise in their share price, uh, most likely. You never know for sure. But does, does it trade in the in Canada, or is it just trades in No, Australia? it's just Australian right now. They're talking about listing in Canada, but they don't write yet. And what is the name of the company again? Papillon. P-A-P-I-L-L-O-N. Papillon. Okay. Excellent. Very good. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's excellent, uh, Brent. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess if there's any, anything else, we do have, he's telling me I've got two minutes, a minute and a half yet. Anything else, any other comments you'd like to make? Tell, tell our listeners where they can, your website, because you have a lot of uh, interesting things on your website. Yeah, where, my, where can my they go? website and newsletter is called Exploration Insights, and it's .com. Um, there's a lot of free information and articles I've written on that talk a lot about the current state of the mining sector, costs, high margin deposits. Yes that sort of thing, as well as a lot of geology. My letter is very, you know, I go into a lot of detail as to why I'm buying something. Absolutely. I provide information that's useful, not just for a particular stock, but for anyone doing due diligence. But I guess, you know, bottom line, the, the way to make money in this sector is to buy low and sell high. Things are low. They could get lower, but ultimately, you've got to believe that 
mining companies are going to need to replace the metal they're producing, the reserves they're producing out right now, and that's the place to be. Yeah, I, I would say tell our listeners that uh, uh, Brent Cook, when he likes something, it's sort of unusual, uh, and because uh, if companies get the endorsement of Brent Cook, it is really it really means something because Brent is a very hard grader when it comes to projects. I think I, is that a fair characterization of you, Brent? You're, you're a tough teacher. You're a tough uh-huh. writer. I, I seem to have that reputation. Some people <laughs> don't appreciate me on site. <laughs> well, I, I, they, they, I think they do. I think lots of companies that I talk to, they say, oh, can you get Brent Cook to come down here? And I said, well, you might not want to waste your time <laughs> or his. But in any event, I do appreciate it, Brent. I, your integrity is second to none in this business, I think, and I really, really do look up to you and appreciate your words of wisdom and also would tell our listeners that they should definitely go to explorationinsights.com. I'll just mention before we uh, part company here, as I'm looking at a, a chart, Brent, that goes back over the last 10 years, this is the, uh, the S&P TSX Global Gold Index. And we're at 160 now, and that's down from 440 in 2011. Uh, so that's what, a, a, you know, three quarters, lost three quarters of its value. And we go back, uh, we're at a level where we were in 2008 at the bottom, and where we were in 2003. Now, it could always go to zero, I suppose, but it, it um, I, I mean, when people like Rick Rule and some of these guys, Paul Van Eden, some people I think are really sharp investors are getting excited. Uh, well, it's probably the time, uh, if you have some money, that you might start to want to look around selectively at a couple of the kinds of names Brent just mentioned. And, of course, on an ongoing basis, uh, your newsletter as well, Brent. Thank you very much for being with us again. It's great to hear from you. Thanks, Jay. Folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with some uh, closing thoughts on today's show and a word about our next week's guest, James Rickards, and uh, a ranting Andy Hoffman will be with us next week, and I'll tell you more about them. Don't go away. I'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. SGX Resources is an exploration gold company with multiple advanced exploration projects in the Timmins Gold Camp. Recent high-grade intersections at SGX's Tully Deposit include 14 meters at 20.1 grams per ton and 17.6 meters at 11.1 grams per ton. The deposit is currently more than 600 meters along strike with a depth of up to 250 meters and remains open in all directions. SGX Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange with the trading symbol SXR. Visit our website at www.sgxresources.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. 
you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Um, I hope that we can help you turn hard times into good times. It has really uh, been very difficult in the, in the mining sector to uh, make money. In fact, I think very few people have in the last couple of years. We've got uh, some, uh, um, some very good ideas, I think, from both Brent Cook and Mickey Falk today. Um, uh, Miranda, uh, Midas Gold was uh, Brent Cook's pick, and uh, Papillon, I think it's an Australian company, uh, two very, very interesting ideas. And if Brent Cook, as I said, Brent Cook puts his seal of approval on something, it uh, usually is a very, very good sign for the company because uh, Brent uh, doesn't find too many things that he likes a lot. And for that reason, I think he's very valuable. And I, I do think people might do well to go to his website and try to uh, to learn more about uh, about what he's talking about. Um, and Mickey Fulp also had a couple of uh, good ideas. Uh, certainly, Brazil Resources, a sponsor to this show, uh, was one of Mickey's uh, picks. Uh, Amira Nani, very, very astute and very competent CEO who heads that company up. I expect to have Amira on this show sometime in the not-too-distant future to talk about what's going on down there in Brazil. Uh, and the other company uh, also uh, Brent Cook is very much aware of and likes it a lot, except he says there's some social issues. Mickey's other uh, pick, uh, Copper Company, an ISL copper project that they have, and uh, very undervalued relative to that. So if they get their social issues picked, Brent says he would like that one as well. Well, that's uh, sort of you know the practical side of what we discussed today, although I, I suppose that you could argue that uh, politics and what's going on in our government is above all practical in many ways. Uh, it's it's uh, uh, philosophical, but certainly when government uh, impinges on our rights to be the free people that we were meant to be and our Constitution declared that we should be, I think um, you know what we need to do is to uh, voice our opposition. I think um, I didn't get into the discussion with Mr. Bergman on, uh, on Mr. Snowden, but if what we see from Mr. Snowden uh, is, w- if what we see is accurate, then in some ways I consider him to be a hero. I believe that if he, um, you know, that, um, that Americans should be aware that they're being spied on by their own government. I mean, why not? Um, and, of course, it could uh, get in the way of, of political decisions, but it, are we getting in the way of liberty? Are we getting in the way of the military-industrial complex that Eisenhower warned us about? Is that what Snowden's all about? Is he stopping the military machinery? Uh, interestingly enough, Mr. Bergman uh, seems to be pretty much on the same page with Ron Paul on everything except foreign policy. And, of course, foreign policy was the one thing that he was criticized for. Well, I'd really like to have uh, Daniel McAdams back on the show probably to answer uh, Craig Bergman's uh, suggestion that, um, you know, that, that what we're doing overseas, I don't know if this is a mischaracterization of what Craig said, because I'm not sure he would put it this way. I don't believe he believes it. Uh, but he certainly doesn't take the same stance that uh, when I ask him, if he agreed with Ron Paul's statement that the reason they came over here on 9-11 is because we're over there. Well, certainly the CIA said that. A recent movie that I just recently saw, um, that is um, Dirty Wars, that is the message that came out of that, that every time that we kill a bunch of innocent people in these countries that we go into, we create enemies. 
And whereas people at one time loved the United States uh, as a beacon of hope and freedom, now it's looked at as a tyrant nation, unfortunately. And uh, and I think that uh, that that is that is most unfortunate uh, because I think if uh, I don't know where else there is a beacon of hope in the world and a country of freedom where we can go to. I think it's ironic. Uh, many years ago, we had the likes of Solzhenitsyn and other freedom fighters in Russia coming to the United States uh, looking for freedom uh, from the, to the West, and now it seems to be uh, people that are looking for freedom uh, and liberty are moving in the other direction. Uh, and I never thought I'd see the day when I would think that... Um, uh, you know that I would look more favorably. Not that I do. I don't think Mr. Putin is any bargain either. But the point is that we would look to other countries for uh, uh, for exposing the truth about things. Um, well, we were going to talk, I'm sure, more about about Mr. Snowden and what's going on there. I thought Glenn Downs had a lot of interesting things to say as well. Um, certainly, uh, as uh, a person who's very much embedded in what's going on in Washington these days, Glenn's insights were very much appreciated and. Uh, I thought very, very interesting as well. I should mention that uh, ne- next week our guest uh, will be James Rickards. Uh, he's the author of Currency Wars, and also I uh, had the privilege of meeting Andy Hoffman, uh, known on the web as Ranting Andy Hoffman. He's a former Solomon Brothers energy market analyst and now turned blogger under the name of Ranting Andy. And uh, Rickards will talk about the currency wars and some very interesting insights that he had as well about what's going on in Iran and the blowback and unintended consequences that have occurred because of our policies. Well, I would do that's all the time I've got, I'm told. Uh, so I want to thank Tacey Trump and Matt Widener uh, at Voice America for making the show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.